Chris and Gracie and their daughters with us today. And for those who don't know, they go way back with us. Chris and I were just talking about the old days at the Dimmings Lake building uh, out there in the cornfields and, and them coming out there. I think it was right after they were married. or I think, Tracy, you were even around before you got married. So uh, they've been around forever. So it's good to see them back here visiting with family. And I've asked Chris if he would lead us in prayer this afternoon. Amen. You can be seated. And so turn, if you will, to Psalm 100. I will read it from the NIV uh, this afternoon and just make two observations before we uh, read this short psalm aloud. And one is the last verse. Notice the twin pillars of salvation are in view here, which is God's love and God's faithfulness. In that song we just sung, the words were mercy and truth, and comes from the older versions of of the Bible. I like truth uh, better than faithfulness because of the connotation. Maybe it's just in my mind. Someone might misconstrue God's faithfulness as being based on anything other than his truth. God will not compromise his truth, even in our salvation, even in his showing of mercy to us. He does not compromise his truth. So mercy and truth, love and faithfulness, pillars of salvation. And then secondly, um, in verse uh, 3, God is shown as our creator. It is he who has made us. And the two commentators that I read are Spurgeon and uh, Matthew Henry. Both speak of this as the original creation. But I would point out to you that in the last half of the verse, it is we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Now think about it. We're not his people, and we're not the sheep of his pasture by virtue of the original creation. It is only by the new creation that we can be called his. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. And so with that, uh, Psalm 100. Shout for joy to Yahweh all the earth. Worship Yahweh with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that Yahweh is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and praise His name, for Yahweh is good and His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Now, before we come to open the Word of God, take hymns of grace. You could take either one, but uh, hymns of grace 48, which is holy, holy, holy. And you may say, why are we singing out of the hymns of grace and not the Trinity? It is in the Trinity, so if you have a Trinity and don't have a hymns of grace, just turn to holy, holy, holy. But I know so much about music that uh, Julie tells me 
Hymns of Grace is easier to play than the Trinity. It has something to do with sharps and flats and all that. I don't understand, but I believe her. So that's why we're doing it out of the Hymns of Grace. So number um, 48, uh, Hymns of Grace, Holy, Holy, Holy. Therefore, no amen if you can withstring uh, when we get there. Number 48. Let's stand together as we sing. Good afternoon. I know those people from Arizona say it's hot in Arizona too, but we have the humidity here, so I hope you're enjoying it while you're here. <clears throat> Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? Psalm 77:13. Let's pray. Lord God, we come into your presence as sinful man, 
We come before a holy God, a thrice holy God, a God who has created the heavens and the earth, who's created all things and all life, and is in control of all things. We stand before a sovereign God, seated upon his throne, and yet a God who loves each one of us, a God who will come alongside each of us to walk with us, to direct us, to direct us from your word. Lord God, your word is truth. So be with us as we open that word today, Lord. Teach us from your word. Direct our paths. Forgive us of our sins and cover us in the righteousness of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. The last time we were together, we were taking a look at Psalm 77. And I said we were going to divide that into at least two lessons and maybe three. Well, I think I've got it down due to the heat, down to two lessons, and uh, see how we can manage to do that. So if you haven't turned already, turn to Psalm 77, and we'll do a little bit of a review before we jumped in to today's um, today's lesson. Last time we were reading through this psalm, we we read through 1 through 10, and we saw Asaph, the writer of this psalm, burdened down with great sorrow and great disappointment, seemed to be carrying the challenges of the world with him. We saw a man who cried out to God. He had begged. He groaned. And he wanted God to see him and to help him in his condition. Asaph was struggling with his doubt. And he couldn't come to grips with why God wasn't answering his prayers. I think one of the lessons that that passage, 1 through 10, showed us was that even if we have great faith, life is still full of problems, still full of trials, and many challenges along the way. With his problems weighing down upon him, Asaph finds his faith is severely tested. I think many of us have been in likewise situations. Finally, we came to verses 11 and 12, and we see a radical change in Asaph. Instead of crying about, what about me? What about my problems? What about these things that I'm carrying with me? He changes in verses 11 and 12, and from a self-centered perspective, he becomes more God-centered. He has a God-centered vision, starting in verse 12. He says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all of your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. So we see this radical shift taking place. And not only does he become God-centered, but we see his faith strengthened. And we see that faith restored because now his focus is upon God and not upon himself and his problems. Now that doesn't mean you don't pray about your problems and your trials, but put it in perspective Think about God and his power to solve those problems. Think about God restoring your faith. Think where your strength comes from, comes from upon high. So like Asaph, we should take a moment and meditate on God in the midst of our prayers. 
we should make sure that we have a glimpse of who God really is. We should take time to focus on God and his power. We should take time to focus on God and his majesty. And we should take time to focus on God and his love and his faithfulness. So that takes us up to verses 11 and 12 as a quick review. And I said last time that we were together that I start today's lesson off trying to address the unanswered question on Asaph's lips. Why didn't God answer? Maybe you've had that same question. I know I have. The first verses of this psalm not only reveal the moments leading up to Asaph's change in his perspective, verses 1 through 10 also give the indication of an ongoing struggle and of a prolonged silence from God. Why doesn't he answer me? Well, the answer to that question is pretty simple. And yet, it's also pretty shocking when you think about it. God was silent because he chose to be. His silence was intentional. And you kind of scratch your head and say, wait a second, would God deliberately ignore our pleas for help? Who knows that he is, we all know that he is a loving and merciful God. It seems kind of in violation of his nature not to answer us when we seek his help. Why would God deliberately allow anyone to go through such a time of trial, doubt, and despair without answering him? I think the short answer is because God wants us to have a deeper faith. Times of trial and doubting are part of the process that make us grow spiritually strong and wise. If God always responded instantly to our cries for help, we would remain spiritually weak. We would be mastered by our feelings and our moods. Our prayers would always be self-centered rather than God-centered. We will never reach spiritual maturity if God always responds to us the instant we call upon him. We will never achieve Christ-like character as long as our trust in God is subject to our moods, our emotions, and our circumstances. So if we're going through a trial and God seems silent, know that despite how it feels, he's there with you. He's there feeling your hurt. He's there hearing the weeping of your eyes. Remember Jeremiah 29:12. It says then, you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. We know from the New Testament, it says, I will never leave nor forsake you. He is also helping us grow in our Christian and our Christ-like character and to help us grow in our faith. This can be a very painful experience. We are learning lessons in this way that cannot be learned in any other way. God is the great teacher and you are the student. But keep in mind that God's silence does not signal his absence. 
nor his disinterest or concern about you. Well, we're going to move on into the latter part of the uh, psalm. And uh, we're going to be addressing verses 13 through 19. Uh, So let me just make a comment before we jump into the verses. The event that defined Israel as a nation was the exodus. When God led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, this event formed Israel's identity for all time. And the book of Psalms repeatedly refers to the time God brought the plagues upon Egypt and the miraculous opening of the Red Sea and the Israelites coming to safety and freedom to the promised land. God fed them on their journey. He led them by a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. The details of these events were well known throughout ancient world. It just wasn't isolated to the nation of Israel. When the people of Israel came to the edge of the Jordan and were about to enter the promised land, they found that the word had spread before them, spread about their rescue from Egypt, spread about the mighty God that they served, the mighty God that's leading them. And the inhabitants of that land were already terrified because of what they've already heard. They were terrified of this God that had done miracles on their behalf and probably a little concerned because they numbered almost a million people. And that would pave the way for Israel to take that land. Now, it's very possible that Asaph, as he was thinking about the Exodus, when he wrote verses 11 and 12, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all of your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. As Christians, we too can reflect on God's amazing deeds. And remember the works of Jesus and his miracles. We can meditate on his teachings. We can meditate on the healings that Christ did. We can meditate on the miracle of raising people from the dead. And meditate on the greatest miracle of all, the dying on the cross and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior from the grave. The Apostle Paul testified to these amazing facts before King Agrippa when he said of the death and resurrection of Jesus, none of this has escaped the king's notice because it was not done in a corner. Acts 26, 26. The historic fact of the death and resurrection of Jesus was a well-attested event that many people witnessed and knew about. The risen Lord didn't just appear to one or two people. He appeared to dozens of people. And he appeared to 500 people on one occasion. These people all testified to the resurrection. So we can remember the mighty deeds of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are very confident that God has acted in history. You've heard me mention the word history before. I like to rephrase it as his story. It's God's story. It's his plan. He's working out that plan. It's all about him. The story of Jesus is not a myth. It's a historical fact. God became flesh and lived among us was crucified and rose again. The Bible is grounded in history. 
Christianity would not last very long if it was based on lies. The resurrection is an essential part of the human history. So therefore, along with Asaph, we can say, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. The psalmist goes on to tell us what will result when we meditate on who God is and what he has done. Verses 13 through 15. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. I believe our faith will stand firm and strong as long as we are convinced of the two important truths that Asaph has expressed here. God is holy, like we just sang, and God is great and greatly to be blessed. As Asaph was, so should we be filled with a sense of awe. An awe, a sense of awe regarding the perfection, the majesty, and the power of God. I know this may come as a surprise to you, but as sinful people, we are usually self-centered. We like to celebrate our own greatness. We don't think so much about God's greatness. That's where our focus should be. We think just how powerful we are. We think how great we are because of our scientific advances like nuclear power or space exploration or that ever-present iPhone in your pocket. But how does this power compare with the power of God? Our sun works on the same principle as nuclear power does, generating energy by fusing the nuclei of hydrogen atoms together. But did you know that our sun unleashes the equivalent of 100 billion atomic bombs per second? What's more, the sun is 300,000 times the size of planet Earth. And it is just one of 100 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, which is just one of 100 million galaxies in the known universe. In other words, at any given instant in time, God's, God's universe is generating trillions and trillions of times of amount of energy of a human atomic bomb. So the next time you're in awe of the human greatness, remember the greatness of God who could create such a universe as ours. It helps me to keep things in perspective. I don't know about you. Asaph continues, verse 14. You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. Now some skeptics will attempt to attack Christianity by using circular arguments. They'll say there is no God, so there can be no miracles. And since there are no miracles... There's no God. But what we have here is a fallacy of attempting to base a conclusion on an unproven assumption. You can't logically say miracles can't happen, therefore miracles have not happened. You first have to prove that miracles can't happen before you can draw that conclusion. If we look at the events of the scripture as a record of eyewitness accounts, 
given by honest, sincere men and women, then the Bible constitutes a strong, convincing evidence for miracles. The God of the psalmist is a God who created a universe out of nothing. Amazing miracle. He's a God who leads nations out of bondage by taking them through depths of a parted sea. The same God breathed life back into the dead. He's a guy who displays his awesome power. It is precisely because of these events that are supernatural that people find them convincing evidence of the reality of God. So we can agree with Asaph in verse 14. He's a God of miracles. Asaph makes another important point about the deeds of God. His works are not simply great, but they're also redemptive. God did great works that saved his people. In verse 15, Asaph writes, With your mighty arm you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The word redeem means to restore or to buy back something that was lost. I can't redeem you from your sins, and I can't redeem myself from my sins. Redemption is God's special work, and everything he does in our lives is focused on our redemption, on restoring this special relationship between us and him. The miracles of the Bible are redemptive. The miracles God did in Egypt redeemed the people of Israel from a bondage and slavery and placed them in a place, the promised land, so they could be useful to God. The miracles Jesus did in the Gospels, the transformation of water into wine, the healings, the feeding of the multitudes, were all designed to impress the people with a truth that would transform their hearts. Jesus is the Messiah. The miracle of the resurrection was, of course, the most redemptive miracle of all, for it was a supernatural event that made it possible for us to be saved from sin and death. In the crucifixion and resurrection, God paid the price for our redemption. He bought us back from the slavery of sin and death and restored us to a loving relationship with him. Everything in the life of our Lord Jesus revolved around redemption. The Apostle Paul wrote, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, and for you, through his po poverty, might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Note the phrase here, for your sake. That's an expression of our Lord's redemptive love. For us, for our sake, he left heaven and became poor. For us, and our sake, he was tortured, he was humiliated, and he was crucified. Paul goes on to say, God made him so, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God the Father made the sinless one, Jesus, responsible for our sin, and he paid the penalty for sin in our place so that we might be redeemed. Scripture tells us that the very moment Jesus is 
right now interceding for us in heaven. Again, he's doing so for our sakes. As we read in Hebrews, it says, Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Chapter 7, verse 25 of Hebrews. So Asaph wrote in verse 15, With your mighty arm you redeemed your people. No one is redeemed without their knowledge. No one is redeemed against their will. Redemption is for God's people, for those who respond to his effectual call, and for those who act upon his word. With his mighty arm, he has redeemed the people. He's still redeeming his people today. And if you've sat here in this auditorium for any length of time, you've heard that same message. God is calling sinners to himself. And the only hope you have is Jesus Christ. So think about what he's done for you, what mighty works he's done for you, what miracles he has done on your behalf. So we declare, as Asaph did, what God is a great God as our God. This psalm opened up with a cry of doubt and despair but the psalmist has traced his way through a period of restoration, a period of strengthening his faith, and ultimately to triumph over his doubts. Now in the closing lines of Psalm 77, he writes in verse 16, The water saw you, God. The water saw you and withered. The very depths were convulsed. Psalm 77:16. The psalmist returns to the theme here of the Exodus. He returns to the history of God's people as they crossed the Red Sea. He alone led them out of Egypt, out of bondage, and out of slavery. Asaph recognizes God's control here of all human activities and all of nature. We like to say we serve a sovereign God. He's in control of all human activities and all of nature. <clears throat> the waters of the Red Sea saw God, and they trembled in fear before his might. This is a profound image of how the water responded to the mighty power of God. It trembled and it convulsed. Imagine the fear of the Israelites when they reached the edge of the sea. The Egyptians were in hot pursuit and the mighty sea blocked their way ahead. Their situation seemed hopeless. Yet the very thing that closed off their escape, the thing that virtually ensured their death or their enslavement again, the water of the sea, the water was afraid of God. God commanded Moses to stretch out his staff, and the sea parted, and the water stacked up on either side and held back by the hand of God. The Israelites went down onto the dry land between the waters. The people were afraid of the water, but the water was afraid of God. The sea didn't dare touch those whom God protected. In Asaph's imagery here, the water saw God, and the water withered and convulsed in fear. 
Did you ever stop to think that the very things that frighten us are themselves under the command of God? The things that you fear, fear Him. Next, verses 17 through 18, Asaph tells us that the forces of nature are but instruments of God's hands. He writes, The clouds poured down water, the heavens resounded with thunder, and your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind, and your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. If you've ever been through an electrical storm, you know what the psalmist is describing. Earlier this month, three young people were out riding their bikes, and they got caught in a downpour, and they got underneath a tree for shelter, and they were taking a selfie to send to their aunt when their tree was struck by lightning. All three were okay. They had slight burns, but... All that power was the result of God and his controlling nature. All of these forces under God's command, no power, nature, or human can operate except by permission from the Almighty. We see another example of this with Jesus. In the hours before his crucifixion, Pilate was questioning Jesus, and Jesus stood silent. Exasperated, Pilate Pilate finally asked him, Do you not realize, why do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize that I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. All the world's forces, all the world's systems, all the world's authorities are under God's control. And all power belongs to God. Nothing can touch us without the permission of God himself. Asaph goes on in verse 19. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. The people of Israel didn't know where God was leading them, but God prepared the way. He knew what he was doing, and the psalmist ponders this miraculous event. He discovers another great truth. The fact that we don't understand what God is doing does not mean he isn't at work. It's a very difficult thing for us to grasp. We want God to explain everything to us, get our advice on what he's doing. We want want his explanation of his plans and his actions. Because if we don't get that, we tend to fret and panic, just like the Israelites did when they reached the edge of the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army was coming. The people cried out to the Lord. Was it because there was no graves in Egypt? He's cried out to, to Moses. There was no graves in Egypt that you brought us up through the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? We see here the people had lost faith in Moses and technically in God. Moses (coughs) decried to them, Do not be afraid. Stand firm as you will see that deliverance of the Lord will bring you today. If we had been in their shoes, or in their case, their sandals, 
would we have acted any differently? In desperate situations, have we prayed, Lord, there's no way out. I'm trapped. Why don't you do something? I confess that I have prayed that way for many times. That's not a prayer of faith. That's a prayer of panic. What the people of Israel didn't understand and couldn't imagine is that this was part of God's plan all along. Though his footprints were unseen, God knew exactly what he was doing. This is a principle we need to remember in those times when hope is fading and there seems to be no way out and all we see ahead is total disaster. We need to place our confidence in him, trusting that he has a plan that is perfect. We can't imagine what God will do, but we can trust that whatever it is, it will be the best thing for us, and in the end, it will bring glory to his name. The final truth that Asaph relays here to us is in verse 20. The Lord is the shepherd of his people, he writes. You lead your people like the flock of the hand of Moses and Aaron. The closing verse in this psalm reminds me a little bit of the first verse in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Because the Lord is our shepherd, he leads us and he supplies everything we need. What does the Lord supply us, his sheep? Well, one thing, he supplies us with a sense of meaning and purpose for our lives. The shepherd always has a goal in mind for his flock. If he leads the sheep up the mountain pasture, he does so because he wants to accomplish something there. If he leads the sheep into the territory of the wolves, it's because he wants them there. It's the shepherd who supplies this purpose. Second, the shepherd supplies love, another desperate need in our lives. Our Lord loves his sheep. He gives us everything that love entails, caring, protection, and provision. As the Apostle Peter writes, cast it all, all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. 1 Peter 5.7 <clears throat> We matter to him and he cares about our needs. That's the heart of a shepherd. Jesus called himself the good shepherd. And he said that defined, what defined him in that role as good shepherd was his self-sacrificing love, his love for his sheep. So whenever we feel abandoned, like Asaph did, or neglected, we need to remember that he is our shepherd. We are always in his care. Even we are not aware of it. God always shepherds his own. And that's the conclusion of the psalmist and lessons that he has given unto us. And I conclude with verse 13 again. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is the great is our God. Amen. close in prayer. Lord God, you are definitely great, greater than anything we can imagine. You rule and sustain the universe. You created all things by your word. And yet, Lord, you loved us individually. You care for us. 
You provide for our needs. You walk with us. You guide us. You direct us. But above all, Lord, you sent your Son to save us through his shed blood. Our sins are covered as we stand before your throne. We stand not as ourselves, but as the righteousness of Christ. Lord God, abide with us. Forgive us of our evil ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Take the Trinity hymn book and we will close our, out our day with number 83. Number 83, we praise thee, O God, our Creator, Redeemer. So let us finish our day in our corporate worship with giving Him praise. Number 83. Stand together as we sing.